Hi, this is Lisa, and you are listening to I Love That Movie. This podcast is for movie lovers. It's not an unbiased opinion. It's not a straightforward review. It's just a couple people talking about a movie that they love. The format is each week I have a guest, and that guest and I discuss a movie that they love, something they're obsessed with, something they connect with. We'll talk about the plot, the director, and the actors, but we'll also talk about the personal connection my guest has with that movie. So if that sounds like something you want to listen to, keep listening. This is Lisa, and if you want to catch up with me on Twitter, you can find me at ILTM Podcast. I've also got an Instagram, I Love That Movie Podcast, and we have a Patreon. So my show's free, but if you want to support us on there and help us keep the lights on, you can at www.patreon.com slash I Love That Movie. And I want to take a quick moment to acknowledge my top patrons who are Chris Bolga, Jeff Widman, Michael Cross, and Joseph George. Again, thank you guys for everything that you do. And if you do sign up for that, you get a little bonus. Um, every week I do a weekly roundup of just pop culture news. So that's a little extra added benefit. Uh, we've also got a Teespring in case you want any I Love That Movie swag. And we've got a Discord group and a Facebook group. Um, so w- last thing I want to plug is... Coming up at AllCon, uh, Michael Cross, Christopher R. Mim, and I will be discussing the movie The Creature from the Black Lagoon. Uh, so that's going to be on Thursday at the Crown Plaza in Addison at 9 o'clock. Um, and we will also have another panel on Saturday of that convention uh, at 11 a.m. And we will be discussing the movie Them. So the live shows are always so much fun. You guys are so interactive with all your questions and your participation. So please come out and enjoy that with us. Uh, and I think I'm done with my plugs. If you like what you hear today, please subscribe and rate this show because it helps new listeners find us. Uh, and I have a new guest with me here today. I have Gordon K. Smith. Say hi, Gordon. Hello. Hey, so you are a first time on the show, although we've met a couple times in person. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience? Okay. I am a writer. I am a video producer and editor, filmmaker, film historian, um, film critic, occasional actor, and... Wow, what else? Uh, there's a few <laughs> movies and TV shows you can see me in. And I uh, worked in the home video business for about nearly 20 years. Wow. I was one of the first and longest employees of Blockbuster. That's so cool. Blockbuster has so many warm memories for me. <laughs> yeah, I started uh, working for them at their first store right here in Dallas like a week after they opened. Wow, that's incredible. And then after working in their first store for, I don't know, a little over a year, I went over to their corporate offices and worked for their corporate offices in Dallas and in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and then back to Dallas. And I was telling you earlier, one of the things I did for them was, one of the many things was write those little blurbs on the back of the take-home VHS boxes that <laughs> <laughs> everybody in the country, those blue those blue and white boxes you took home from your local Blockbuster, I wrote those notes on the back. 
Oh my um, gosh. So, okay. I have to share something with you. I didn't realize. So are you saying that Blockbuster was Dallas based? Oh yeah. I did not realize that. How did I, I'm, I tell, I'm telling you like every time I go to one of these film events or meet somebody from the local scene, I learn something new every day. Like that is so cool. I had no idea. The first store, in fact, I, I live in the village and I'm not far from it right now. Was over there in Medallion Center, which is now an Applebee's. That was the first blockbuster store in the world in 1980, 1985. I saw a meme today that was like, it said something to the effect of, we created so many memories, so many of the best nights at Blockbuster, and we didn't even know it. And I <laughs> really feel that. Also, I appreciate your uh, contribution writing those blurbs, because I just have to tell you, I don't think Netflix has anything on you guys. <laughs> I feel like they write some pretty crazy stuff on some of their movies. So I think you got you had a more succinct style, for I sure. Ac- I actually <laughs> did some... Uh, Blurb writing for Netflix also oh, after did? I okay. left Blockbuster. Oh, that's uh, cool. There is, I think there is a, a thought out there with a lot of people that Blockbuster started in Florida. It did not. Uh, it did start here. And the guy who developed it here basically sold it to Florida millionaire H. Wayne, H. Wayne Heisinger in about uh, 89. Mm. And he took took the company over and relocated it to Florida, to Fort Lauderdale. I had no idea. That is so cool. Well, Gordon, um, that is awesome. And, you know, my guest always picks the movie. So what movie did you choose to talk about today? I chose E.T. the Extraterrestrial, uh, which is the complete title. Most people just call it E.T. Right. Oh, you're you're absolutely right. And um, I am so excited you chose this. I don't know if you believe this, but I'm actually looking at an E.T. poster right now. (laughs) This is a huge movie for me. Um, I've got a, I don't know if it's like a reprint, but it's that, uh, it's like a pop-out poster that's made out of plastic that's almost 3D-like. You can touch it. And it's got that $24.95 for the VHS and Pepsi on it. Do you remember that? He's like holding a little flower pot. Do you remember oh, yeah. this poster? That's uh, <laughs> The flower is a chrysanthemum, which is an integral uh, prop in the movie. Yeah. So I'm a big fan. Uh, but we're here to talk about your experience. So when did you first see E.T.? Well, I first saw it right after it came out at the late lamented North Park Cinema uh, over here at North Park Mall, which um, was the premier palace to see a movie in Dallas and and maybe the state of Texas for many years now. They shut it down finally in the early 90s, I think around Mm. 90. Boy, I'm going to get this wrong, too. About 98, not not early 90s. But it went, uh, they went without a theater over there for a long time, and now they've built a, an AMC multiplex over there. Yeah. But in its day in the 80s, that was uh, June 1982 when the film was released. And for years before and after that, it was the place to see a movie in Dallas. Now, I would have to say it took me more than one viewing before I just suddenly fell in love with this movie. And I don't remember exactly why I didn't fall in love with it on the first viewing. Hmm. I did on the second one, which when it was reissued in 1985, 
And I don't remember what I was going through at that time, but E.T. for me is one of those movies that no matter, it, it's about something else each time you see it. You, you, you feel something, some new communion with it, and it affects you on a different level every time you see it, uh, depending on what you've been going through in life. What E.T. the movie and E.T. the character actually symbolize changes over the years. Now, I wasn't a kid when I saw it, you know, but I think for a child who sees it, it might be E.T. might symbolize a dog, might symbolize an imaginary friend. Later on, and I'm maybe getting ahead of myself, but I think it, it brings it brings on different depths and meanings when you when you, uh, you put on some years and some experience, I think. Yeah, I love that about films, you know, it, it, ones that you see. Um, especially when you get the chance to see a movie at different stages in your life. I, I agree. A lot of times films grow with you and they can take on a different meaning when you see them. Uh, I first saw this movie as a kid because I was born in like 83. So <laughs> like I don't, I did not see in theaters. I was not born yet, but um, you know, it was definitely very popular when I was a kid and I remember seeing it and, uh, you know, feeling a, a big emotional connection to it. I remember going to Universal Studios and riding the ride where E.T. like says your name as you leave and you see his wacky planet or whatever happens on that ride. I can barely remember it. But, um, you know, it was a, an important movie to me. And then when I was watching it again the other night, I found myself, you know, just as moved as before, I think this movie is really special. I honestly can't think of another children's movie that, like, I guess gave me s- such a range of emotions that was so... Because I feel like a lot of kids' movies, I think, hold back a little bit. You know, they keep it pretty light. They keep it um, pretty upbeat, the whole film. The stakes don't feel as big you know because you're like oh it's a kids movie but i feel that et even though it is a children's movie the stakes are pretty high like there's some pretty big stuff that happens some sad things some real life uh you know emotions and connections and i think that's what makes the movie so special at least for me and i think it's special on a lot of levels now it's interesting i don't consider it a kids movie and and I can and see that. I know it was probably in some places marketed that way, and I'm sure it was to this day used by babysitters to uh, keep uh, unruly children <laughs> quiet. But um, I think it's a movie about children or in which children are the protagonists, but it's not a children's movie. I think it has some very deep and, and, and mature themes along with the other themes that it mm-hmm. has. Um, and it, Yeah, I agree. I think, I guess when I say it's a children's movie, I mean that, you know, I saw it as a child and I really connected with it, but it has more meaning to me than a lot of other kids' movies, if that makes, or a lot of other movies involving children that I enjoyed at that time. But I totally hear what you're saying. I think, I think that uh, Steven Spielberg made it about children, you know, mainly, and E.T. certainly, his whole world is mostly with children. But he, it's not like he talked down to children in this movie. I don't think he treated them as a separate audience. I think even uh, Drew Barrymore said that, that she felt like he really listened to her. And he kind of, I think he treated the actors that way. And he treated the material that way, like treating children as though they're, you know, just people. And so I think it really speaks to kids and adults on, on a level that a lot of... I agree. And have. I think Spielberg... 
maybe this is, you know, arguable, but at least for an American director, he may be the, the best American director of children in movies. And he felt yeah. a great affinity okay. with Francois Truffaut, the French director, who he also thought, who Spielberg thought was a great director of children. And which is one of the reasons he cast Truffaut in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And now E.T. evolved from Close Encounters and several other interesting sources, including Mm -hmm. some that I bet most people would have not a clue uh, that E.T. evolved from. And uh, we will get, well, I will go right to that because there's a really... Yeah, go for it. We can kind of transition to our uh we always have a part of the show where we do like little trivia facts you know i usually spit out about three why don't you take the first one and go ahead and talk about that and then i'll chime in with mine and and so here's on. here's the here's the uh, ground zero of et uh set the wayback machine to hopkinsville hopkinsville kentucky 1955 in which everybody out there right now is going huh what's that got to do with et that was the site of a very <laughs> famous UFO incident in the 1950s, uh, which mm. went even in the 50s by a number of names and is still controversial to this day. Basically, it revolved around a family, I won't say hillbillies because that's considered a very outdated term now, but rural people living in a farm up in the hills who on that night, on a night in April 1955, claimed that they spent four hours fighting off an invasion of aliens from a spacecraft that crashed in the lower 40 and that they, uh, small uh, alien creatures with shiny yellow eyes attacked their house, farmhouse. And when they reported this to the police, of course, they were taken as crackpots and drinking too much moonshine, but it was investigated. And then they claimed, uh, after they went home, they claimed it happened, it started happening again. So then uh, some local authorities, some local military authorities and police checked it out. I won't go into too much detail about that. You can find out stuff online if you just Google Kentucky UFO incident or Hopkinsville. But fast forward from there, now, I'm not, me personally, not saying what did or didn't happen there. It's a great story. And I first heard about it as a kid when, as a kid growing up, the time I did, we were very much into uh, UFO incidents and events at that time. Uh, it was quite a, uh, there was a huge pre-internet obsession with them in the 60s and 70s. And now, mm-hmm. fast forward to uh, Close Encounters. Now, even as far back as the late 50s, that incident was already inspiring some movies. Uh, the first one being uh, mm, American sense. International's Invasion of the Saucer Creatures. <laughs> Look up the trailer sometime. It's pretty great. <laughs> and just as a footnote, that was uh, remade in Dallas in 1965 as the Eye Creatures by the great Larry Buchanan. And that was, uh, both those movies, I have uh, no doubt were at least a little bit inspired by that incident. Now, after Close Encounters of the Third Kind was a big hit, 
And during the making of Close Encounters, Spielberg consulted who, a man named J. Allen Hynek, who is at the time the leading expert in UFOs in the world. And he had heard this story from J. Allen Hynek about the Kentucky uh, UFO supposed crash and attack. And it stuck in his head. And Columbia Pictures, which had made a lot of money off of Close Encounters, was desperate for Spielberg to make a sequel to it. Right. I see. They always want a sequel because (laughs) it was a huge hit. If you remember, Close Encounters came out the end of the same year that Star Wars did, 77. And Spielberg started working with the great screenwriter John Sayles on a, a new script called Night Skies, which was a sort of sequel to Close Encounters, but was clearly inspired by the Kentucky invasion case and was much darker, much more sinister than Close Encounters was. Now, Spielberg eventually decided he didn't want to go that way with it. He had had a project in his mind that he wanted to do based on his parents' divorce in 1960. And growing up as a lonely kid yeah. after his father had left, had left the home. Now, Columbia decided... Uh, They still wanted a sequel, so first Spielberg tried to talk him into, okay, let's do this idea, and we're not going to do Night Skies anymore. And Columbia listened to his pitch for what was then called E.T. and Me. I'm kind of giving you the short version here, the gist of it. And they said, we don't want to do that. That's a kiddie movie. Uh, But they still had the rights to do a sequel. Uh, Spielberg... And they still wanted to do the uh, night skies. Spielberg wanted to hold his ground on that. And during the making of Raiders of the Lost Ark in 81, now remember, this is Spielberg's most fertile period. And I think E.T. presents Mm -hmm. like the, the zenith of his greatest period, which he didn't get back on the same level with until Schindler's List uh, 12 years later. But this is Spielberg in his prime. He had done Jaws. He had done Close Encounters. Now, he took a big misstep with 1941, which nearly killed his career Mm. early on. And nobody liked it. And it was hugely expensive. (laughs) And if if, uh, Raiders had not been the hit that it was, Raiders uh, put him back on top. While he was making Raiders, he dictated his idea for E.T. to Melissa Matheson. Melissa Matheson was a screenwriter who was at that time Harrison Ford's girlfriend. So she was there in Tunisia right. with Spielberg and Harrison Ford. And she was tra- Spielberg was giving her his concept for E.T. She thought it was a great concept, and it brought her to tears. And between the two mm-hmm. of them, they started coming up with a screenplay. This is a screenplay he wanted to do at yeah. Columbia. Well, Columbia did not want to do it. Spielberg did not want to do the the more sinister or scary film, Dark Skies. Spielberg started shopping and around. Universal wanted to do it. So they made a deal. Now, here's an interesting footnote. They made a deal. Uh, 
to buy the to pay off Columbia a certain amount of money for him to retain Spielberg to take his rights and take mm-hmm. his idea to another studio. In in the deal, Columbia still had a five percent interest in whatever movie Spielberg made, and because E.T. Mm-hmm. wound up becoming at that time the highest grossing film in history. Uh, Columbia made a ton of money off a movie they never made. And Columbia said that was that was Columbia's highest grossing, highest grossing film of 1982, and they didn't even make it, thanks to that 5%. That's so crazy. Spielberg took it to Universal. <laughs> Melissa Matheson, who passed away in 2015, she wrote the screenplay. And it still carried just a hint of the the Kentucky incident in that um, a friendly alien, and in Night Skies there was one friendly alien who befriended a, a, a autistic boy, and that was the one aspect of that script Spielberg wanted to, to spin off into his idea for E.T. between him and Melissa mm-hmm. Matheson. So now, by the way, there that, yeah. um, that incident the Kentucky incident still inspired numerous other films to this day. It inspired Gremlins and inspired the sequels to Gremlins and all the imitations of Gremlins like Critters and Ghoulies. Yeah, they, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you can kind of feel right. like slight connections Particularly, to this movie. Yeah, especially Critters, but they all, they all, were, they all were derived down the line from that. So... Mm-hmm. That's the uh, the genesis of uh, of ET, and mm-hmm. uh, it was a huge hit. It was test screened at the Cannes Film Festival. It was a huge hit and was a giant hit almost upon arrival in June, nineteen eighty two. Now, um, one thing that I will say that. Uh, when I finally, upon my second viewing and on all subsequent viewings afterwards, I realized how much I identified with Elliot. Elliot, and I, mm-hmm. believe it or not, actually the uh, E.T. has some Texas uh, connections with it too. Um, Henry Thomas, who is cast as Elliot, and by the way, here's some trivia for you. What are the first and last letters of the name Elliot? E.T. Oh, I never noticed that. Ah, I love that. Aha. Ah. <laughs> uh-huh. Spielberg was looking for someone to play the boy who was basically based on himself, on Spielberg yeah. and his childhood. I love that background of this movie. And I feel that that deep connection, you know, relating it to his childhood, to the divorce his parents went through. How you right. can, I, I also even liked how he feels lonely and he's sort of on the outside. And yet he has siblings and friends. But I, I like that he touched on the fact that you can have friends and family and everything and still feel loneliness. I mean, what that kid is going through with his parents separating is, you know, I've, very relatable and painful. And so I think it just makes that's part of what makes the movie so strong. You know, they always say, write what you know. And I feel like yes. Steven Spielberg's strongest work is when he's kind of just writing about himself, you know. Absolutely right. And and in fact, I think the movie is about loneliness. And I think some of the greatest movies that, that are on my list are about loneliness and how people experience it and 
what happens as a result of it. So in uh, E.T., Elliot is the middle of three siblings living with a single mother after the parents' divorce. And I grew up as the middle of three siblings living with a single mother after our parents divorced. Wow. And that is why I so deeply identify. And I was a nerdy kid who was very lonely as a kid much of the time. Yeah. And yes. (laughs) I I feel like childhood loneliness is something that's not often touched on. Um, I mean, I was an only child. So, you know, my parents used to joke, she's an only child, not a lonely child. But I do remember a lot of hours and hours and hours essentially alone and and feeling that way. And, you know, this movie did really touch me, this idea of another outsider that comes in and connects with him on like every level. I mean, even like psychically. (laughs) And it's just so... Uh, endearing and just so easy to relate to. So I, I can I can definitely see that. I think a lot of people can really relate, but especially like yourself when you're literally the middle child and you're, yeah. you went through the same thing. So even as an adult, you're thinking, man, this is talking about my life. And, you know, just kudos to Steven Spielberg for touching on something that so many people related to. For sure. Uh, Henry Thomas was a Texan, by the way. He was from oh, San Antonio. <laughs> He, he was cast in the film. He had made one movie before that in uh, Austin area called Raggedy Man with Sissy Spacek. And mm-hmm. it was directed by, that movie was directed by Sissy Spacek and Spielberg and Fisk knew each other and Spielberg was looking for someone to play Elliot. And Jack Fisk is the one who recommended Henry Thomas. And Henry Thomas... Mm-hmm. Uh, in his audition, brought up the feelings of how he felt when his dog died and started crying and brought everybody at the audition to tears, including Spielberg. That's how he got cast. He's still around, by the way. You don't see him that much, but uh, he was in uh, these gangs of New York, been on TV a lot, still very active. Uh, When people in your life start, uh, when some people close to you have passed away, Watch E.T. again, and you might suddenly feel that it's an allegory about death, about yeah. what happens when someone very close to you um, is no longer there, passes away. And I will tell you, I saw it after my father passed away a few years ago. And when at the at the ending, and let's say this E.T. has, I think, has to be placed, the ending of E.T. on the list of the five greatest endings in American cinema. You know, it. Uh, people cried at it mm. in 1982, and I think they still are today. And, of course, I'm talking about, like any great movie, you need to see it in a theater with yeah. a packed house. You haven't seen it till you see it that way as a group experience. But uh, E.T., mm-hmm. I think maybe along with uh, Field of Dreams, are two movies of the 80s that people made people cry at the ending. But I saw it not long after my father passed away. And when E.T. puts his finger on Elliot's forehead and says, I'll be right there, I lost it. <laughs> I just lost yeah, it. Yeah, I can I could, I could understand that. I can't even yeah. watch it on that part on TV now without really choking up. Oh, that's so sweet. I love that. Yeah, I mean, the movie really... 
again, it hits you in so many emotional places, but you know, their connection and the part of the movie, like I always, that I think gets me is when he tells E.T. he loves him. You know, it's like, I feel like the whole movie is sort of building up to that moment. You know that they have a close connection. And then when he says, I love you, it's just like, oh, you know. Oh, yeah. No, that moment. A gut punch. And another one that I just find profoundly moving every time I see it is, and it's so beautifully edited, beautifully scored by John Williams, who won one of his five Oscars for scoring the film. And we talk more about the Oscars part of the of the film later but when uh d wallace who i did get to meet once as the mother you never hear the family's last name by the way she's just called mary (laughs) she is reading peter pan to drew barrymore and and there's peter pan imagery throughout that and through a lot of Spielberg's films. There's a certain number of like books and previous movies that weave their way, find their way into Spielberg's movies all the time. Mm, that's interesting. One, including his favorite childhood movies. I mean, at one point in ET, he's watching TV and he's watching a clip from This Island Earth, mm. uh, and a classic Universal Studios, same studio sci-fi movie from 1955. But anyway, uh, uh, D. Wallace is reading Peter Pan to her, and Elliot and E.T. are watching from the closet. And uh, Elliot has cut his finger, and E.T., when you first see the finger light up, E.T.'s finger light up, and he heals Elliot's finger while D. is reading Peter Pan. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And uh, boy, that chokes me up just talking about it. If, you know, if your mother ever read a book to you as a kid, I think you can't watch that scene without tearing up a bit. Mm, that's interesting. I love that. Yeah. But that, so that we, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, we jumped, we're jumping around, which is totally fine. I think you got most of my, uh, my, uh, Trivia facts, by the way. I've got a ton more. You mentioned film historian. Uh, the only uh, couple that I was going to throw out there uh, was that Steven Spielberg shot most of the film from the eye level of a child to connect Elliot with E.T. And I don't think I ever noticed that, but the second I read that, you know, that's just one of those things that as a general audience member – you know you're making these connections and you're feeling things that the movie wants you to feel. You don't always know why. And so when you read that, it's like, that's true. Like the eyeline of E.T. is pretty much, you know, he's he's kid-sized and everybody else um, is kid-sized. And the whole movie feels like it's on the ground a little bit, you know, because most of the shots are with the children. And I don't know. I just thought that was kind of an interesting fact. Yeah, you beat me to that one. That is a great, uh, <laughs> a great trivia about that film. And, and there's more to it. In fact, that's one of the things I wonder if people who have only seen ET on TV, if they even ever caught that, uh, yeah, that you're some right. Other you things. wouldn't notice it as much because I think probably when I first saw this movie, it was on TV. Yeah. So, you know, I, I definitely had a different experience than somebody who first saw it in the theater. I think that I've seen this in the theater. Yeah, I have. Uh, but I don't think that, you know, because it was so much later, I don't think I picked up on that. That's, that's interesting. Well, what's, what's really interesting about that too, is not only is it from a child's eyeline, 
and and low angles looking up like a child would do. The only adult whose face you see until the final part of the film is Dee Wallace. Mm, you do n- you're right, because all the scientists, usually right. you're seeing them in the hazmat suits, even the one that he kind of connects with, the one that's like, uh, you know, he feels just like him. He He's sort of the adult version of Elliot yeah. in some ways. Peter Coyote. Um, you usually see him in profile. I'd never thought about that. Peter Coyote, uh, whose only name in the movie is Keys because he wears jangling keys on his belt. You see him in oh, okay. the first scene, but you never see his face. You only see him in silhouette. You don't see his face until the uh, climax where the military invades their house. And mm, okay. one of the reasons, there are many, one of the inspirations for Spielberg doing that was the cartoons of Tex Avery, another Dallas site, who did these <laughs> incredible cartoons where you wouldn't see adults' faces like that. But that's just one of the oh, inspirations. Yeah, you're right. yeah. Uh, that's such a beautiful, totally a beautiful touch that only someone I think Spielberg's uh, Spielberg's knowledge of a child's world would have put in there that you would not see another adult besides Dee Wallace, besides the mother, uh, until until that part of it. That's one of those things I'm not sure people get who only see mm-hmm. it on TV. Uh, the uh, uh, what was I going to say? Um, he was uh, working on the film at the same time he was working on Poltergeist, by the way. That's right, because uh, Drew Barrymore was almost in Poltergeist. He was almost she in Poltergeist. Yeah, and he was like, no, you're wrong for that, but you're right for this, which I am glad that she's Gertie yeah. <laughs> instead. She had done a few things before that, and starting when she was three years old, Wow. And now everybody kind of forgets Robert McNaughton. Uh, he had done only a few things before his role as the older brothers, Michael, and didn't do many things after. He kind of left Hollywood. He kind of left the yeah. acting biz. He did a couple of more things after that. He went and worked as a postal uh, worker in New Jersey for years and years. Wow. And I looked it up and he did come back a few years ago and start making some low budget films, uh, including one called Frankenstein versus the mummy, which didn't exactly, I think, burn up the box office anywhere, but he has, uh, started acting again. Uh, interesting. Wow. Some other, some other notes on the cast. A lot of people might know that, Deborah Winger did some of the voice of E.T. She didn't do all the voices. She did some of them. Mm. Several people's voices were used for E.T. and even some animals. There was a woman named, I think, Julie West, who was the main voice. Uh, Apparently someone who was a chain smoker (laughs) smoked 12 (laughs) packs a day or something like that, had the right kind of deep voice for it. Uh. Deborah Winger does have a cameo herself in the uh, Halloween scene. Oh. Yeah, she has a mask on. And that there is that classic moment where E.T. sees a kid with a Yoda mask and suddenly starts walking towards him like, I see another of my own kind. And starts yeah, another alien. Another alien. <laughs> Literally. And George Lucas kind of... Uh, 
repaid that favor by putting E.T. E characters in the crowd scenes in Phantom Menace, which any good yeah, Star right. Wars nerd knows. Now, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, Melissa Matheson. Now, here's something. We talked about Melissa Matheson before. She was the, when they started writing the script, when she wrote the script, she was a girlfriend of Harrison Ford. They were married from 83 to 2004. Harrison Ford was originally in E.T. That's right. He was going to play uh, a teacher, right? He, he played the school principal. Also, you did not see his face. Principal. Now, they did use his voice. I don't remember this, but I'm going to pay close attention next time I see it. The, he, he did supply the voice of the science lab teacher who tells the kids to start dissecting the frogs. That's apparently oh, okay. Harrison Ford's voice. But he did record a scene as the principal who, after Elliot gets in trouble, letting all the, liberating all the frogs, that wonderfully edited scene, he has to go talk, you know, he's a bad boy now. He has to go report to the principal. Now, that scene was cut. Right, yeah. Now, from what I have read, if you, now you said, I think you said you saw it. For years, the only place you could see that scene was if you went to the, on the E.T. ride at Universal Studios Theme Park in Florida. Yeah, I don't recall that scene. I just know I've been on the ride, but I mean, I was real little. <laughs> so uh, I don't remember it. Well, on the monitors outside of the ride, while you're queuing up and waiting for it, they would tell you background on the movie E.T., how it was made. Oh, okay. And I think Dee Wallace hosted it. And mm. they would show you Harrison Ford's scene as the principal. And, of course, as with the other adult characters, you don't see his face, but you hear him. Right. Now, according to what I read on the research, at least one Laserdisc edition of it does include that scene, maybe as a special feature. But none of the other version, none of the later edits of E.T. have that scene in it. So wow. I don't know. It might be on. It might actually be online somewhere on YouTube. I, like YouTube I never or looked. something. Yeah. yeah. So speaking of that, um, which uh, do you own the movie currently? Uh, yes. Okay. Do you have the one where Steven Spielberg spent like you know hundred thousand dollars to remove the guns from that last standoff, or do you have the one where they're back in? No, I actually still have one of the original VHSs. And oh, cool. I, you know, having worked in the home video business, I probably still own more VHS tapes than anybody in Dallas. <laughs> I think I know one or two collectors who might have more. In fact, it was at the time. And now here's an interesting thing. You could never do this today, but Spielberg would not even allow that to be on VHS tape until 1988. That's right. He was anti that and you know i think and he he also pushed back when it went to dvd too right didn't it for a long time not yeah. exist on dvd either and i think that's why i've talked to people that are younger than me like sometimes 10 years younger or you know more and they don't know about et as much because for such a long time it was not on 
Ah. so they weren't able to see it so like it's funny how that kind of backfires like i understand the way steven spielberg felt he's like i don't want this to go to vhs this is a movie it should be seen in theaters but then it went that way and he had to and then the same thing with dvd well now i don't want to put it on dvd well now i don't want it to stream you know it's like unfortunately when you make those choices sometimes it can affect that next generation that's going to watch everything on that format yeah it was also not even televised until i think November 1991, and it was a, this was a big deal at the time in the home video biz. Now, Sears, um, which was undergoing some, some uh, not doing so well at the time, and they needed to take a big chance to really promote their image, and they bought broadcast rights to it. And mm. they were at the end, they became for a while the exclusive uh video distributors of the VHS, which, by the way, they printed on green, originally on green uh, VHS tapes, so they couldn't be bootlegged. Oh, wow. I never even thought about the color yeah. of a VHS tape. In other words, if yeah, someone, and sense. you know, people were figuring out how to do that early on, it was one of my various sure. jobs at Blockbuster to uh, <laughs> to find where people were bootlegging. You know, they could only buy regular black VHS cassettes. So if you found one that was done that way, you knew it was a bootleg. But um, they could, can you imagine they could have never predicted, you know, what's happening yeah. now? <laughs> you could just download it. So, so in, for the 20th anniversary for in uh, 2002, yes, yeah, Spielberg spent $100,000 to spiff up several scenes with CGI. Uh, there's a whole new scene with, Elliot and E.T. in the bathtub, where E.T. is now a CGI, not a, an incredible puppet creation. Puppet, yeah. Now, in the original film, it was there was puppetry, and there were also some dwarfs and um, uh, some dwarfs and midget actors and stunt people inside the costume, including one person who could only walk on his hands, who was born without legs. So I find that scene like, right. like you know, one of these things is not like the other. Uh, when you see the, <laughs> the scene of them in the bathtub, and there's there's some other spiffed up scenes of ET running through the fields, getting surprised early on in the film, running, uh, trying to catch up with the ship that flies away. And yes, uh, the infamous um, there's there's a few other changes in dialogue here and there too. But yes, the infamous scene where Spielberg, I guess, decided. You know, he could only be touchy-feely at that point by 2002 and hated the idea he had had the actors pose with guns. So he goes back and digitally changes the guns into (laughs) walkie-talkies. It's kind of funny, though, when you think about it, you know, um, my my husband was saying like, oh, that's so weird that they took him out. And I'm like, yeah, but if you think about it, it is sort of an extreme response to these children on bikes. Yeah. I mean, I know they have E.T. with them, but they pull out these giant rifles and it's like, you're really going to shoot children on bikes? You know, it's kind of like in retrospect, he was probably just like. He, he probably did that because it's dramatic and it's exciting. But then he was like, I don't like the idea that these police officers wrestled with shooting children. Like, I, yeah, I police officers and federal <laughs> agents. And yeah. as, as the kids are making their big escape. Uh, and by the way, uh, uh, well, also remember, he had just finished directing uh, Readers of the Lost Ark at that time, which certainly didn't stint on mm-hmm. violence. 
Uh, oh yeah, by, or gun, you know, guns. By either. 2002, <laughs> I guess his head was in a different place. He did. Spielberg, even after that, then went back again and said, "You know, I should not have meddled with it. There was nothing wrong with it." And he apparently he well, he kind of yeah, he kind of fell into that uh, same trap. I think that George Lucas did a little yeah. bit right with like, "Oh, we've got you know uh, CGI. This is going to improve in everything." And it's weird how. You know, I really think that E.T. being a puppet is essential in the same the same thing with Yoda. You talked about Yoda earlier, but it's like there's all these human nuances added to him because there's a person inside of it. Um, His hands, I never noticed that. But, you know, in in the behind the scenes, Steven Spielberg talked about he hired like a mime to you know, do things with her hands. And she did all these things that you just don't think of unless you're that kind of person, unless you're somebody who studies human uh, behavior the way that someone like a performance artist like a mime does. And I think that collaboration, you know, using people that understand puppetry and understand human movement and then using somebody like that's a mime and just uh, somebody that designs, you know, he used a a company that designed glass eyes for the eyes um, and just so many different people uh having all that input i think that that really helps you know and and the same thing even with george lucas it seems like those first three movies were so strong because he had so many different people he had a team all the best of everything working together and i think et is the same thing a great script writer you know a great um director and then all these other great people making his creation come to life it's not just him or just one person uh, working on it so i think and, and I was thinking too, like when I saw that scene with Yoda walking by, are you watching uh, The Mandalorian right Not now? yet. I, I've heard of it. Show? Yeah, I know of it. Okay. okay. But you heard of yes. Baby Yoda and the fact that everyone is so in love with him. I feel there are a lot of parallels between Baby Yoda and E.T., including some of the things that Baby Yoda's able to do. I'm not going to give you any spoilers. Okay. I won't say too much further since you haven't seen it. But I think that there's something to that. There is, and and Baby Yoda is also a puppet. They thought about making him CGI, but they decided not to. And I just think that actors act differently when they're with something physical. And I think the audience can tell. And there's just a lot about Baby Yoda's mannerisms and his abilities and his connection with the main character. I think it's somewhat similar to this. I don't know. I was just thinking about that. So internet out there, you guys <laughs> chime in. Do you agree? Do you well, not agree? <laughs> but it's just something that was running through my brain. Well, while we're talking time. about E.T.'s powers, oh, by the way, a quick note. The next time you see it, next time you see E.T., in the scene we were talking about, where the, depending on whether you're watching 1982 or 2002 version, uh, right before the kids start their big bicycle chase from the cops, watch carefully. You'll notice Suddenly they stop to put on hats and ski masks. And you're going, if you start thinking, why? Why suddenly do they have, before they start this bike race, <laughs> have to put on hats and ski masks? Here's why. That's so you can't recognize the stuntmen who are actually riding the bicycles. <laughs> that makes sense. I guess you could make up a reason like, oh, it's going to be cold up there. I don't know. But you're right. I mean, it's obviously. You so can't, can't tell. tell yeah, you can't bikes. tell who the stunt bike riders are in that seat. Uh, this ha- actually happens a lot in Hollywood with stunt people who are. Uh, this is why the main oh, sure. star, uh, Tom Cruise, whoever it is, is wearing dark glasses. Why he's got hair that flops over his face. He's wearing a hat. That's so you can't tell him from the stunt man, <laughs> folks. 
but that's an old <laughs> trick. But makes sense. ET's. Uh, I want to get to an area here I find fascinating about ET on a whole nother level, and and that is I like looking for uh, religious symbolism in movies. There is some fascinating Christian symbolism in ET as there are in some other science fiction movies, particularly The Day the Earth Stood Still. Uh, sometimes it's done well, sometimes it's done badly. Sometimes I think filmmakers kind of throw a thing or two in there just to see if you're paying attention. Uh, now, Spielberg has mm-hmm. been confronted with this, and officially he has said, no, I never intended it. And he said, and he's been quoted several times as saying, no, my mother is a devout Jew, and if she thought I was putting those messages in my film, she would never forgive me. Uh, although he has certainly done it in other <laughs> films, too. Uh, now, some people have pointed out things like the, the fly, even the, the craft that E.T. arrives in looks like a Christmas ornament. Now, that's just one thing. But mm. E.T., yeah, I could see that. think about it. He, he gets three apostles. I'll just give you the case for it, and you don't have to accept it, but something to kind of think okay, about. Okay. I'm... I think for the record, <laughs> no, I, I, day I'm the day the earth stood still has much more, uh, I think, obvious Christ symbolism. And still that director, Robert Weiss, didn't, didn't, uh, wouldn't own up to it either. But E.T. arrives on earth. He gains these apostles, these three children. He can heal the sick with his finger, which he does to Elliot. Mm-hmm. He wants. He knows his time on Earth is That's limited. Right. He needs to get back to his to his home planet, way far up in the heavens somewhere. What does he do? He creates a device to communicate with them. By the way, my father, who was who sold electronics. The thing that he makes out of the Mattel CNC, uh, speak and spell, I'm at, speak and spell. Yes, speak and spell. And various uh, yeah, pieces yeah. of metal and electronic stuff. My dad told me he thought that could actually work and could actually transmit a message. Uh, and and it was a design by that. a scientist who, who I read up on. It's also made its to be an, an actual practical transmitting device. He uses this device. He goes with one of his apostles up on top of a mountain to communicate with his maker, with his, with his, yeah. his heaven, mm-hmm. you know, quote marks around everything here, folks. And this is kind of Gethsemane. <laughs> this is kind of, um, I know my end is, is near. I'm going to be leaving these people. I need to, uh, I want to speak to, you, you, uh, up in the sky. And when uh, Christ was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he had three of his apostles with him. But he told them to stay back while he spoke to spoke to God. And after speaking to God, there is this uh, invasion by uh, police, by people of the establishment of the ruling class, the establishment, the military establishment. By the way, the one scene at ET, you got to admit, doesn't hold up to a lot of logic Mm -hmm. why they would suddenly set up their laboratory in their house out in suburbia in front of everybody instead of immediately. I know it's just, it's just exciting and convenient, but 
It doesn't make yeah, a lot instead of, sense. of packing it up, hauling him off to Area 51 right away. But anyway, so <laughs> when they arrive, they they take ET hostage, and ET, you know, the the authorities take him hostage, and he suddenly is dying. He's dying, mm-hmm. and uh, with his apostle Elliot, you know, pleading to be with him, and ET eventually dies and comes back to life. Right. And flees with his apostles again from the authorities, comes back to life, reunites with his, quote, unquote, everything quotes around it, apostles, goes back to the mountain and has an ascension. Yeah. Before he ascends, he passes on wisdom to the apostles. I think that's a pretty good argument. Do you think that part of it could be, like you said, it's not necessarily, or as Steven Spielberg said, it's not intentional, but this is a story that we've all heard. It's like impossible to be in America or even in the Western world and not have heard this story. So it's like, even if you try, even if you don't believe it, it's like it could end up getting into whatever you're writing just because you've heard it so many times. And so it ends up influencing, you know, your storytelling. It's a story that you've heard. I just kind of wonder that could be part of it. And then also I heard that E.T., the reason why he has the powers he does is because uh, the screenwriter, Melissa Matheson, and you know their team, they asked some children, like, what, what kind of powers do you think E.T. should have? Like, they kind of explained the concept, and the kids were like, oh, well, he could, like, lift things, and he could, you know, just things that kids are interested in. But they also mentioned they, it would be cool if he could heal. Right. Um, he, he performs miracles. Right, exactly. He makes and, things and, float, makes things fly. Yeah. Heals the sick. And his heart glows. Mm-hmm. And it's likely that his, that his, it's likely that these children could be drawing on what they've heard too, you know, healing right. uh, and, and miracles and things could be something that they heard about Jesus. So like there, I think that there is probably a connection there. And I also think it's really sweet, just on a side note, that these children thought of healing as a really cool power that they like. She And I know she mentioned not bring back to life, to heal. And she was like, I just thought that was so sweet and so pure. You know, we, we made sure to include that. Yeah. Um, I, uh, that's interesting. Uh, how it's, there's suddenly, it suddenly gets dark, which by the way, <laughs> I hate to keep throwing all these out folks, but I was raised a Southern Baptist in my early years. And, you know, look at the gospels. <laughs> they talk about, uh, the side of the crucifixion getting dark in the falls, and it does in ET. There's presumably they're all the, they're in a part of the forest where um, there's no light getting in now, so it becomes very dark. And you know, ET's heart is beating now; its uh, heart is glowing. He does the, you know, I'll be right here, and um, then. Uh, one thing I, in, in seeing Spielberg's films of recent years, he knew exactly where to end E.T. He hasn't always been good at that. Uh, he hasn't always been good at finding the exact point where, boom, black, roll credits. Um, he's let some, in a few of his films, and as much as I like Saving Private Ryan, he kind of didn't know where to end that, uh, of letting his endings kind of go um 
not exactly like, where's the exact ending point here, Steve? And boy, there is that just boom. It's not even a fade out. It's a cut to black on Elliot's face. That just knocks me out every time. And then it's quiet. And then um, uh, John Williams Gore comes back in. And by the way, quick note on the Oscars that year. E.T. won uh, four Oscars. Now, to me, it should have won them all. (laughs) (laughs) I understand as a fan. And you know what? I agree with you. It's an incredible movie. It it won uh, best um, music, of course. How could it not? Uh, John Williams, sound effects, editing, special visual effects, and sound recording. All the awards, the big awards that year went to Gandhi. And, mm. But even Richard Attenborough himself, the director of Gandhi, thought E.T. should have won. And in later years said that, you know, he really thought E.T. deserved to win and thought E.T. He was a huge fan of E.T. And Spielberg, you know, no no hard feelings, because if you remember, he cast Richard Attenborough in Jurassic Park. Oh, nice. As, That's awesome. As the, the old guy who, you know, ran the island. That's right. And as uh, Jurassic Park, which, of course, Spielberg broke his own record by becoming the new highest grossing film of all time. Can I ask you a trivia question? Every time we talk about Steven Spielberg, I ask people if they can name from memory the 11 films he's directed that were nominated for Best Picture. Okay. Stand by. (laughs) I've got. Okay. I'm going to start with Raiders of the Lost Ark was. Yep. E.T. was. Mm-hmm. Um, Saving Private Ryan was. Yep. Munich was. That's five. Mm-hmm. Uh, boy, big a fan as I am, I'm surely not going to bomb this. Color Purple was. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, 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 Bridge of Spies was. Um we said Munich. We said um, Schindler's List. We said Lincoln. That's right. How how many have I gotten now? I think you're missing. Let's see, one. Let's see, one. I think you're missing a big one here. I, Two, I said Schindler's three. List. You did. Um, I said. Um, the first one he ever won? Uh, Jaws. That's right. Okay. Yes. I think we're missing that one. Yes. So I count. Uh, I was kind of going backwards with it. With the list. <laughs> I understand. I think you've got two, two more, and I think these two are not always, either maybe not always remembered that he directed or just not thought of as best picture. Okay. Um, give me the decade. <laughs> okay. The first one is from 2006 or 2000s, I guess. Well, it's mute. Has something to do with the war. That's saving, not saving Private Ryan, Munich. Uh, Not Munich, not. um, uh, Wait a minute, 2006. Can't believe I am drawing a blank on this. It's okay. It happens. (laughs) It's a lot to remember. Uh, It's letters from Iwo Jima. He didn't make that. Huh. Oh, produced. Oh, sorry. You're right. I think you, (laughs) 
Oops. He also produced the last nine of these as well as letters. From- oh, okay. Then I think you got all of them except the post. Ah, you're right. Absolutely and right. And did you say Bridge of Spies? I did say Bridge of Spies. Okay, okay. Then I think you just missed the post. Right. Sorry about that. I'm looking at this sentence, and it said that at the end, and I was counting it. I, <laughs> just I trying was, to throw you a little curveball. Okay, ball. no, that's fair. I was going with the ones he directed. <laughs> well, you were right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that was pretty good. Um, I've had some guests. My friend Kara, when she comes on, and she did all three, well, the three first uh, Indiana Jones movies, and I asked her every single time. <laughs> Just to throw her off. Yeah, another thing, uh, boy, I've got to, I can't believe I didn't mention this when talking about the ending. Um, if if I haven't lost it up until then, the last thing you see there before Elliot's faced in and the blackout is the rainbow. When the mm, ship goes right. off into the sky and leaves a rainbow, that's such a beautiful yeah. touch. Yeah, it is. There's so many uh, really sweet, things that are added that you almost miss and then but you know they're really important to the scene which and of course rainbows also have religious connotations i don't know if that's true if he if he meant it that way or not but those i'm not the only one with this theory believe me you can find oh, tons no, no, no. About I, it. I saw that he, <laughs> in the in the behind the scenes that i watch he mentions it for sure so yeah you're not alone at all <laughs> um yeah, but if you want to see a science fiction movie with really bad Christ symbolism, watch the Omega Man sometime. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I love that thing. It's like just when you thought it couldn't get better and there's there's the rainbow. And then Dee Wallace Aww. is crying in the movie at that point. You know, when she – that's too – it's almost too bad that she hasn't had a bigger career since then. And I don't know the yeah, reasons. Yeah, she did a great job. I've heard the stories, and I don't want to repeat stories. Uh, but right. uh, I did get to meet her at a, at a uh, uh, horror convention once. Oh, Texas cool. Frightmare Weekend, I believe it was. Um, oh, that's awesome. That's a great event. And let's see. What have we not talked about? <laughs> I will say we did skip the uh, the summary, but that's okay. <laughs> I think everyone has seen E.T. at this point. Need, uh, uh, a uh, synopsis like the ones I used to write yeah. for Blockbuster? <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, uh, logline. Uh, three kids in suburban California uh, are left alone a lot by their divorced mother, and one of them, out of loneliness, develops a friendship with an alien who nobody can see. Uh, except the three kids for the longest time and uh, becomes a symbol to the kid of his missing father and who knows what else as it does for anybody who watches it. And Pretty good. I, on, on the last couple of times I saw it, I was funny thing. I wondered, well, well why, does, why does he need to have a dog? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> is it E.T. enough? Why does the family even need to have a dog? There is a dog who's <laughs> running around when the uh, the ship takes off. and But there is a couple of scenes in which E.T. is walking around D. Wallace and she thinks it's the dog. And that's right. So I guess that's the that's reason the, the dog. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. the reason the dog is there. So, so one of my favorite scenes that I feel like they couldn't even do now is the, the frog scene that you mentioned earlier um, where E.T. is drinking beer at home. And also like, 
you know, later Elliot gets in trouble for being drunk yeah. and then the mom finds the beer at home. Right. And she's like, oh yeah, that's why. I, I can't even imagine them putting that scene in now. And I really, I think, again, that's just another element of realism that, uh, you know, Steven Spielberg put in there, even though I know that aliens drinking and, and you feeling the effects are not realistic, but I mean, just that's something that could happen. Your kid brings a beer to school or something like that, you know? So it's like things that maybe today would be considered a little risky to put in a movie are hilarious uh, in this. Well, film. that, that scene uh, establishes the link, the right, telepathic right. link. It's very necessary. And then he proceeds to, uh, Chase down the girl, Erica Alanaik, give her a big kiss. At the same time, E.T. is watching, uh, oh my God, I'm drawing, a, I'm blanking on the name, the, the movie with, John Ford movie with John Wayne, he's kissing Maureen O'Hara. Uh, so. <laughs> I'm not sure which movie oh it is. I, I would help you. Uh, sure. I'll, I'll remember it as soon as we stop talking about it. Um uh, yeah, E.T., it's only very famous, uh, but E.T. is watching them kiss, and then, you know, halfway across town, Elliot gets the idea to kiss the girl, and that's where you see they've they've established that psychic link right, with right. each other. It's such a beautifully edited scene. I would have given it the editing Oscar, too, just about everything, but it was nominated, I think, as an editor, you know, and I have an editor, too, a video editor. I noticed things like that. Yeah, it is flawless. Like it, it's something that didn't have to be that artistic and that pretty, but it is. I agree. And he took pains, by the way. Spielberg took pains to to do something not quite the way it's usually done, but so the kids would build their own actual relationship with ET. He shot it in chronological order. Oh, really. That's which movies are, are seldom done. They are, right. uh, on occasion they are, but every filmmaker would like to shoot in chronological order, but it's usually just not possible. Mm-hmm. And he wanted the kids to build their relationship with E.T., and he never let them see E.T. without somebody in the costume. Yeah. He, never, he never let the magic trick go away, in other words. Right. That every makes time a lot they, of sense, yeah. It makes a lot of sense. Every time that that they saw him on the set. It was it was the full E.T. puppet, the full E.T. with the actors inside. Yeah, and I think which, especially for children, but I mean, even with adults, I think it does affect the performance if there's something physically there for them to look at, yeah. Exactly, but but also for them so that they would they would invest their emotions in, in in the character in E.T. so that the emotions are showing at the end of the film are genuine. Yeah. They're crying for sense. real. Nobody cries like like little Drew Barrymore either. Oh, I know. <laughs> she's so precious. <laughs> she's when like she's the bringing, little sister. And she brings back the chrysanthemum, the one that the chrysanthemum, the flower that dies and comes back to life when E.T. Yeah. does. Just another one of the great, great little touches in it. Do you think E.T. is getting sick just because his people are so far away? I feel like they don't ever truly explain that, but it, we're thinking, like me and my husband were talking about it, we're like maybe it's sort of like a, a shared existence, like the way that he connects with Elliot immediately. Maybe he his his people, it's like they have to kind of feed off of each other's energy in some way or they're you know a collective. 
I, maybe. I've always yeah. wondered about that. And no, yeah. it is not explained. I've never even heard if anybody's asked Spielberg about it. I don't know what his answer was. I always thought it might be that the atmosphere on Earth was different from his home planet and he just couldn't breathe it more than a week. Yeah. I mean, that's a good explanation, too. I think... You know, me asking this, the, the reality is it's not really super important to the story. No, I think that's why people don't ask, but my mind always goes there. So, but I, it, I like it, that explanation too. Yeah. yeah. That he couldn't, he just couldn't breathe earth, earth atmosphere, earth temperature, whatever it was. It's uh, like he, need, he, he needs his peeps to come back and, and he save needs him. his peeps to come back. He symbolically <laughs> dies and then uh, comes back to life. You know. Gosh, that scene, I have to tell you, as a kid, when those children are crying and they're like, E.T., no. I mean, that was just horrifying uh, as a kid. I mean, seeing E.T. dead was traumatic. <laughs> I mean, but just, if you needed anything to get you to feel more for E.T., I think that that did it. And and again, like you said, the, the emotion on the children's faces, I mean, it's real and it feels real. And that helps you believe in uh, the character. I think, wasn't it, I, I believe it was George Lucas, when we did our Star Wars episode on this show, we talked about how um, the, if, you know, he took a risk with Yoda because Yoda is just a puppet. And that could have seemed really silly, especially when almost all the other characters are people. But he said, if everyone treats him like he's real, he'll be real. You know, it's how the other actors play off of that puppet. Doesn't matter how real he looks, really. Um, and I, that always stuck with me because, I mean, you know, Yoda is like one of the most important parts of Star Wars. And Hello? when he dies, it's, you know, spoiler alert, uh, <laughs> it's a really big impact. And I think E.T., it's the same. It's because everyone treats him as though he's so real that that's all that really matters. You know, that's what makes E.T. feel endearing. And that's why you love him so much, because the characters do. Yeah, I would have the the uh, bad feeling if it were made today, they wouldn't waste a second in doing it in CG. Um, I know. I a agree. bad feeling I got watching the trailer for the new version of Call of the Wild with Harrison Ford and realizing. Oh my gosh, you're not the first person to say that. Yeah. The dog is entirely CGI. And, you know, I could not roll my eyes high enough. <laughs> to go like, I know. Really? I'm anxious to ask. You know, when when it comes out, I'm anxious to ask kids. You know, how do they feel? Like, is it different for somebody that's younger than you and me because they've grown up with CG? Maybe they're better able to suspend disbelief with that. But yeah, for me, it's like, I mean, that's distracting. It doesn't. I don't know. We'll have to see. I guess. Um, <laughs> but there's no reason why that couldn't just be a dog is how I feel like there are some movies you know that Sonic the Hedgehog movie or something obviously <laughs> that can't be a real hedgehog but this dog should just be a dog yeah. so yeah no, I, like, I know what you're saying like, what we can't train a dog is this political correctness or uh, <laughs> The Quiet Man by the way was a movie I was trying to think of I, I, oh, okay. I got man I couldn't think of the, the what man but uh, yeah I was thinking it, it was this due to the you know the controversy over the way, and uh, one of the one of the a dog's purpose movies that a dog was that's right was possibly they put him in that river mistreated, yeah. and they just thought, you know, let's just forget it. Let's just forget <laughs> it. Let's just do a CGI dog. I'm sorry, folks. That, I hadn't even thought of that, but that is totally possible. Yeah, 
that could be why. Because, yeah, because today, now more than ever, you know, back in the day when people were filming movies, I mean, you know, you could be like, oh, I live near where they're filming and I saw this. But today, everybody's got a cell phone and they go to these sets and take pictures and video all the time. I mean, there's really not not trying to say that anybody should hide, you know, mistreating a, an actor dog right. at all. Don't want to be. But I'm just saying, like, you could take a video or a picture of every single thing you're doing and then it goes viral instantly way before the movie ever comes out and you're held to account you know instantly so it's like i i could see it being kind of risky now to have animal actors um, yeah yeah which is also why and, and i've been an extra and done over 50 extras and bit part things in uh movies and they really don't like you to bring cell phones on sets either if you're just yeah an actor or an extra yeah for for a lot a whole lot of reasons not just that but <laughs> uh they all threaten to uh you know like threaten to confiscate them um yeah that's uh, uh not right just not right <laughs> well if they remade something like this they could not have a uh real et but you know i agree i think that um it's almost always better when it's a practical effect uh and i know i've said that a bunch of times you could probably make a drinking game <laughs> to how many times we stress he should be physically real <laughs> but it's true i think that uh i think the audience can tell and especially harrison ford i'm anxious to see what his performance will be like with the cgi dog I... <laughs> or maybe i'll wait hear about it and then i'll decide if i want to see it <laughs> yeah i just uh knowing that he was reacting to you know a green blob with ping pong balls attached to it <laughs> in those yeah. scenes is uh you know it's just quite not quite the same thing although they possibly now they will they will actually have actors who can do animal type movements when they right when they're doing yeah. a, a cg CGI well, she's probably of an reacting animal. to a person. Um, the uh, yeah, when you see the 2002 edition of ET, the scene with the CGI ET in the bathtub just doesn't. Uh, it doesn't work. <laughs> just doesn't work. <laughs> just doesn't work. You know, oh, I, the other question I had watching this movie, you know, uh, are are you a fan of the show Stranger Things? Yes. Okay, mm -hmm. so I always gripe. That back when Stranger Things came out, um, I remember a lot of people that were a little bit younger than me saying that it reminded them of like Goosebumps and uh, the what's it called? Uh, the X-Files. And I was like, no, 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 no. If you want to know what's inspired this, you have to watch, you know, John Carpenter films, uh, Stephen King, uh, you know, related films and Steven Spielberg. And I knew that I knew that the creators, you know, basically wanted to make it and they showed the kids a lot of different films and they showed them like the Goonies and they showed them E.T. And this time when I was watching E.T., I noticed that at the beginning, actually, my husband pointed out that they played D&D &D at the beginning of this movie. And the kids on Stranger Things played. Right. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And yeah. I never even noticed that. It's very <laughs> 80s uh, oriented. Yeah. The font that they use for Stranger Things is like an 80s font. Right. And it's like John Carpenter type. Yeah. yeah. The people who, who made it, obviously, you know, they came of age seeing those movies of the 80s. It's a right. great idea. Um, yeah. It gets all of us in the nostalgia 
There was right in the field. There was that yep. movie called Super Eight that was along the same lines. That was that's true. Yeah, clearly yeah, I inspired. That movie. I liked it by Spielberg's. Uh, you know the stuff of the '80s that he directed or produced, like Goonies, mm-hmm. uh, which he produced. So yeah, I I, uh, I need to catch up on Stranger Things. I haven't didn't haven't caught up with the last season, but I just started uh, streaming uh, recently. So. I was watching it on DVD. <laughs> Join the streaming world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. yeah. Um, yeah. It's just, it's something I just felt like I had to mention, you know, just because th- there is a connection there and I never noticed it. I mean, even the dynamic between the kids, I feel like that's why that show works because the, the kids, their relationships feel real. Um, you know, sometimes they curse. Uh, sometimes they get angry at each other. Like all the, all of their interpersonal relationships make sense. And I think, you know, Steven Spielberg was great at that, as you already mentioned. So, yes, he was. Yep. What else can we talk about that? Um, I would urge anybody who's only seen it on TV, wait till uh, the Fathom event or Alamo Draft House shows it again, and then go see it with a crowd. It's mm-hmm. a whole different experience. Absolutely. And I hope they'll be playing the, uh, not the recut version. It's an unfortunate thing (laughs) that, and even if it is, you know, that doesn't ruin it or anything. You know, if that's the only one you can see, see it. But but there is a trend that when a movie is recut, re-edited, that that's the one you see from that point on. Uh, right. At least they went back and corrected it. Yeah, that's so what happened. That. Yeah, the only version of The Exorcist that ever seems to get shown anymore is the director's cut, which mm. has like uh, several minutes more footage in it, and which gotcha. I don't think is necessarily better than the first one, but it's the only one that they show. Now, they E.T. Is, is available on two or three versions of it are available on dvd and blu-ray now and i think spielberg has pretty much insisted that the that both versions are contained on the dvds and on the blu-rays uh oh, okay i'm not sure if that's currently the case um, hmm. I watched I it think digitally it on iTunes. Oh, you did. And when I watch it on iTunes, the guns were back. So oh, I good. think I got. I I don't recall any CG ET in that. So <laughs> I think if you rent it, you may not get that choice. But possibly, if I had purchased it, I would have more options. Uh, he did go back and and recut Close Encounters again oh, to okay. uh, change to re- to change the ending of that back to the way it originally was in 1977. That's another one. The first one that he redid, which I don't think was an improvement, was the his director's cut of Close Encounters, and then he kept changing that around over the years. Uh, I think the <laughs> version that he wants of, of that to be shown now is is back to being the best version. So, with some changes, but not the not the new ending he put on it. I agree with you. Director cuts, they can go either way, but I can imagine as a director, if I were him, you know, the temptation to go back and fix stuff would be kind of maddening. So I kind of forgive him for it. (laughs) Yeah. The, um, uh, it must, I mean, certainly when you've got the power and clout that he has to do it, right, uh, right. you know, the urge would be there to go back and do that. 
uh, I'm glad he didn't, <laughs> or glad that <laughs> glad that he put it back. You know, right? But I think he said yeah. he will. He will not. He will not. Um, you know, meddle with his movies anymore from this point. Good, good. Um, we appreciate that <laughs> as fans. <laughs> the you know talking about Stranger Things, some of these old ones. Uh, reminded something I didn't tell you. I was also in, in when I lived in Florida, I was a late night horror host. <laughs> TV, oh, that's TV awesome. TV horror host. That is right up my alley. That's, that's incredible. From about 94 to 97. Did you save like those I do. I saved them. I have them all on VHS tapes. I have <laughs> some of them on three quarter inch tapes. That's so cool. Uh, I, a few I on beta SP tapes taking up large part of a storage <laughs> unit, and I'm not sure what I'm going to do with them. Oh, man, you got to convert them, like get them digitally like to files and stuff and put them out there. I bet that, that would be so fun to, to go back and see. Well, um, in terms of E.T., was there anything else that you wanted to cover or you feel like you got all your greatest scenes out? Well, uh just about every scene in that movie is a great Agreed. scene, but I will say, as I said, and to kind of just recap what I was saying earlier, I think it's a movie that will mean something different to you at whatever stage you see it in. And whether E.T. represents someone that that was very important to you, who you lost for whatever reason, through divorce, through death, they moved away. Uh, it's, it's a great allegory. Mm -hmm. I, I completely and and it works and I can't even think of another movie like it that works like yeah. that. It's one of those handful of films with just such a uh, wonderful theme, no matter how many times you see it. And you know, props to Kelly Kitchens, it's a wonderful life uh, that can still and also just still move you deeply or make you cry every time. Yeah, folks, see it at. Um, you know, see it with a crowd, being a being a whole theater full of people who are crying at that ending. Now that's an experience. For sure. Right there. <laughs> yeah, I think you've covered my two questions actually. You, you did that perfectly. I always ask, you know, why uh, why do you keep coming back? Why do you see it so many times? And how do you pitch it? Um, I'm I'm right there with you. I think it's a classic. It definitely resonated with me on a big level as a kid. I had et merge i had a little et ceramic bank that i think i got i think i got it in mexico it's like a knockoff et <laughs> kept it for a long time i don't know if i still have that thing but it was awesome um i had like a little stuffed et that i carried around and um even as an adult i just go back and watch this film and feel so many emotions watching it um but yeah i love i love what you said about connecting it with loss you know either losing someone through death or moving away or the ending of something it's that's so true um i think that is why it's lived on for as long as it has and and i always always say that you need to see these movies in a theater so i'm with you there um there's just something Absolutely. about an audience that you just can't create it at home and i know guys i love being on my couch i love netflix but you really need to get out and see movies. And, you know, my little group, I try to have, I'm going to try to have some more 
public events for that very reason, because I want to get everybody out going to the theater. Um, but in your home at home, you know, if you're not listening to this locally, I think you need to get to a theater, man, and see. Some and you'll get great you should. Uh, I think ET is it's screened at least once a year in Dallas. Either, like I said, through a Fathom event. There are so many, and I love that there are so many theaters doing doing, uh, uh, retro film series now. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I'm more likely to go to pay for a ticket to buy a retro movie than I am for a new one, if I'm honest. Because it's a safe bet. You know, I know I like the film, and I maybe haven't seen it in a theater with a bunch of people yet. So that's gotten me out there. And there's been several movies that I've seen many times. And then when I saw it in a theater, it was a different It's a different experience experience to see it nonstop, beginning to end, without commercials, without distractions, uh, in the dark. With a with a crowd who's also there because they love that movie, and there's so many things you'll mm-hmm. so many details things you will make out that you thought I never noticed that before. Uh, I never heard that before. I, I never 100%. noticed that little whatever it is something in the background, something in Elliot's room, uh, mm-hmm. you know, something in the uh, in the classroom. Now I've got to go back and next time I see it, look for this. But something that that I read that connects with the rainbow at the end is that there are the ra- the shades in Elliot's room are rainbow colored. I don't remember oh, that, so the that. next time I see it, I'm going to be looking for that kind of detail. Nice. I well, yeah, I'm watching <laughs> it again as well. So, <laughs> oh. Well, Gordon, thank you so much for taking the time out to come on my show. Is is there anything that you want to plug before wow. you uh, um, sign off? I don't know. There's a <laughs> <laughs> anything you're working on? The, anything that I'm working on that a lot of people could see uh, is stuff on YouTube. Go check out my website, gordonksmith.com. You, you'll see a lot of. Uh, Videos I have okay. done. One of them is tribute reel I did for actor Martin Landau, that was shown his memorial service in L.A. Oh, awesome! Uh, it was I made it for him for the wow. uh, 2016 Fort Lauderdale Film Festival, and after he died, I was called by his daughter. And she said he loved it so much. He watched it every day before his death. And they wanted to know if I would give them permission to show it at his memorial service in Hollywood. And I kind of went, let me think. Of course you can. And Yeah. um, Wow. What what an incredible gift to give him and that family. That is incredible. Yes. uh, That's I'm very proud of that. And you'll also see one I did for Burt Reynolds just a few months before his death. I have done uh, a lot of videos for film festivals in Dallas and uh, around the country, uh, tribute reels, the kind you see on award shows, something I specialize in. So among other things. So you'll see stuff like that. Check out my website. Okay. I'll include your website in the show notes as well. Well, thank you so much, Gordon. Um, I think you need to think about what movie you would talk about if you came back, because I'd love to have you back. Oh, love to talk about the last picture <laughs> show sometime. 
Okay, that, I'll write that down for you too. So that's you another kinda... one very meaningful to me. Um, and famous as a Texas production. Hmm. Uh, just about any science fiction classic you could name. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, that that is something I am also interested in, so or definitely. <laughs> Day the Earth Stood Still, I'd gladly talk about, or Casablanca. Mm. Oh, I love Casablanca. Citizen yeah. Kane, The Big Sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, yeah, quite a few. Lawrence of Arabia, uh, any of those. Well, you sound like you're the man to call. Well, uh, thank you so much for coming on and hope to have you back soon. Hey, thanks for having me on.